Namotasa Bhagavato Arato Sama Sambudasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arato Sama Sambudasa Namotasa Bhagavato Arato Sama Sambudasa The sake of all beings, wisdom, compassion, and non-clinging awareness. Good. Well, let's turn to this uh, chapter on visual distortion. So talking about substances, substances, nature of substances. So in the uh, case of things that are eternal, such as atoms, in the Greek view, and not so long ago in the Western view, uh, atoms are considered, atoms and the space they're in, space, is considered to be eternal. So for instance, our normal consideration of space is what? Last forever, right? Space? Last forever. Is that true? Turns out not to be true. In modern physics, space is not an eternal phenomena. It's a seething, uh, ever-changing flux of energy and particles going in and out of existence. Boom, 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 boom. Has no constancy whatsoever. Appears that way, but actually is not a constant whatsoever. However, so both the atoms and space are eternal, and the variety of things that we see, hear, touch, smell, or taste are just different arrangements of atoms. So, for instance, if you take a piece of paper and you write on a piece of paper, and you burn it, you've now rearranged the atoms, but you haven't destroyed the atoms. You've simply rearranged the atoms because the atoms, according to the old Greek model and uh, some Indian ancient Indian models of, at- of atomic theory and recent models up to about 80 years ago, 60 years ago, is atoms are and space is eternal. The Buddhists 2,500 years ago, Buddhist uh, yogi scholars, would have said right from there, nope, you're going to find out it's not. Interesting, eh? All the way back then. Yep, there can be atoms, but they're not eternal. Yes, there can be space, but it's not eternal. As a metaphor, it's eternal. When we use space uh, as a metaphor for the mind in Mahamudra Zogchen, it's eternal. It's, it's got an unchanging property about it, unchanging, non-conceptual property. That's different. Because it's not a thing. Mind is not a thing. When the things change, the atoms constituting them are simply rearranged, even though no atom passes out of existence. This is, this is the model. It cannot be destroyed and continues to exist in the scattered pieces of ashes. Nothing that is really real, that is, nothing that is a substance, can ever be destroyed. How about that, eh? Isn't that an interesting idea? that substances cannot really ever be ultimately destroyed. And it does not depend on our minds. So that would mean if it can't be destroyed and ultimately can't be altered, then it's independent of mind. They do not depend on our minds because they continue to exist whether we perceive them or not, whether we perish or not, whether there's mind or not. So that means that there are real 
substances real things? Believe it or not. Not. Okay. That means, according to the teachings or the view of emptiness, all things can exist, but they don't exist for real, and they only really exist by social um, agreement. If the social agreement is strong enough, they exist. If the social agreement is not strong enough, they don't exist. Not really exist. They appear to exist. The most important point in our present discussion of, illus of illusions is that the Buddhist yogi scholars uh, and philosophers do not regard the discussion of whether or not substances exist as purely theoretical. That is, it's important to know that it's not an armchair discussion. He's making a point of that. This is not for them an armchair philosophical discussion. For them, the purpose of determining the existence or non-existence of substances is not just to arrive at a theoretically satisfactory understanding of the fundamental objects that make up everything there is, but is supposed to have far more comprehensive implications for how we interact with the world. The realization of the non-existence of substances, the not really existence, the not really true existence, is supposed to bring about a cognitive shift, a knowing shift, a knowledge shift, a different way of seeing the world, which means hearing, tasting, touching, and so on, which will ultimately also bring about the cessation of suffering, one of the fundamental characteristics of existence. Why do I keep repeating that even though I don't have to? Because every day that you meditate, keep remembering what it's actually on about. It's not theoretical. It's actually about the cessation of suffering. If it's not, if this work that you do, this enjoyable work, I hope it's enjoyable for you, uh, practice study that you do, if it's not actually about decreasing suffering in you, and you can't see it after time, changing your being, then it's not for you. That other means the relationship that you have with the teacher, or the relationship you have with the that lineage, or whatever, after some time, if you've been listening, and if you've been practicing, it's different. If you haven't been practicing, you haven't been listening, well, it's, that's, that's something else, isn't it? What can I say? You're just waiting for miracles. But uh, short of that, uh, if, if substantive change is, isn't being seen, then go, go, go somewhere else. That's why I say it. Just go, 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 go on another journey. Okay. It's important. And then, then you'll say, well, how do you know? You know, I know people who don't know. I can see the changes. They don't know. Why? There's not enough discrimination in their being, trained discrimination to actually know if, if something's changed. They go, well, do you think so? How do you know? That sounded Dalai Lama's voice. Do you know? That's what happens three days, right? Three days teaching. Do you know? No, can you tell me? No, I'm not going to tell you. You must learn to know for yourself. You see? How do you know? What's your measurement devices? Well, I don't know. That's because you haven't studied the science of liberation. You don't have the vocabulary. 
You don't have the discrimination. You haven't gone to school. That's what you're here for. School. It's yogi school, right? Yogi school. Sometimes yogi school is a week. Sometimes yogi school is a month. Sometimes there's been teachings going for three months, right? Straight. Six hours a day. Three months. Why? We're changing physiology. We're changing maps. It lasts for the rest of your life. Never, never, ever doubt it. Okay. Independent of one's particular theoretical position. So no matter what theoretical position you take, because we're always taking a theoretical position over something, isn't that right? Called a view. Mind you, that's not theory. So he's using theory incorrectly here, but that's I'm a stickler for how the, what the word theory means. Anyways. Independent of one's particular theoretical position concerning the existence or non-existence of substance. Substance. Substance is something that is superimposed on ordinary objects in the process of conceptualization. I'll repeat that. Maybe worth writing down because that's one read again, 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 because that is sufficient for a breakthrough to experience emptiness. That that direct contemplation. Independent of one's particular view, let's put it that way, independent of what your scientific view, independent of what you hold to be true, concerning the existence or non-existence of substance. And I'll explain why. Substance is something that is superimposed on ordinary objects in the process of conceptualization. It's up to you to see the superimposition. You need to catch the superimpositions like in the Matrix enough times you go, oh my goodness, until you get a physiological change. It's, it's like whew, right through you. It's called insight. One more time. Yeah, it's worth hearing again and again. It's like like profound statement. Substance is something that is superimposed on ordinary objects in the process of conceptualization. So what do we need to do? We need to be able to observe conceptualization occurring, and we need to be able to watch perception happening, so we can see the whole process right through and gain insight. Now, how do you take a theoretical position? Do you know what a theory is? You see, a model is different than a theory. We operate by maps. Normally, most of us operate by maps. Grapeseed grape seed extract is an excellent... Uh, is an excellent uh, antimicrobial, antiviral substance. Have you heard this? Some of you have? Do you have any basis in fact that that's true? Have you looked it up? Have you studied it? Have you looked at any studies? But what would happen? What happens when you get sick? Yeah, but what happens when you get sick? I know people. They go, oh, well, I got. It wasn't the grapeseed extract. It was something else. It's easy. I've known people who've taken grapeseed extract and got terribly sick. 
But they did say, well, it's not the grapeseed, actually. It was something else. Or I slipped up. I didn't take it properly. I didn't take the right dose. I'm not saying it doesn't. But there's no evidence that it does, especially in the dilutions that people use. It does not. Then we're talking homeopathic. So if you believe it, fine. But, And the studies that have been done, they're suspect because the chemicals they were in to extract them are stronger antimicrobials than the grapeseed extract. Okay, what I'm saying is, do you have a belief? Do you have an operational model? Do you know what I mean by operational model? It's, a, it's like building a house model of how you see the world, and you walk around it, but you don't know you're in a house. Like when you make an architectural model, it gives you an idea of how something gets built, how it's going to operate. We have models, they're called neural maps. We have thousands of them. I have a map for Terry's face, I have a map for Laurel's face, I have a map for Barry's face, I don't have a map for Cynthia's face, I'm just kidding. Okay? Every, every one of your faces, I now have a map. And if you're a guy, the likelihood is you have a map for a Lamborghini, Mercedes, I'm not kidding, by the way. This has been tested. This is the case. I can see them. You can see them clearly, right? Just like that. Yeah. That's how, Where'd that come from? How'd you get the Lamborghini to appear, or the Ferrari to appear in half a second, in clear detail? Better than you can do with data yoga. Yeah, oh, excuse me. Yeah. How? From practice, but where does it come from? Did it just come up magically from space? But it appears like that, doesn't it? Isn't that phenomenal? Phenomenal, pardon the pun. But isn't that cool? <laughs> isn't that cool? The Lamborghini or the Ferrari is right there in detail. Isn't that amazing? Those, so how many maps are you holding that can appear in less than half a second in utter clarity and utter surety. Well, what we were doing the other day, someone said to me, um, you know, can you taste a coffee? Yes, I have memory of coffees. I can remember a coffee I had at the 49th parallel probably, you know, two or three years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Is it existing? No. It's in memory. But it can come up like that. Can you distinguish between memory, maps, and substantive reality? Have you learned enough in this course, this retreat, that all of your substantive reality is what? Superimposed maps. Because now I don't, I don't need to see your faces anymore. Why? I feel like I do, but most, almost all of your face that I'm recognizing in body is what? Out of memory. It's too much processing power. It's way too much work for the organism to keep looking fresh. So what does it do? It takes a few features and goes like this. And if it matches, it's okay. If it doesn't match, we'll fudge. We'll fudge. Catch that one. Catch the fuzzy. Catch the fuzzing. <laughs> Did you know that? Isn't that something? It's way too much work to keep, a ma to keep filling the details of this room. I don't need to fill the details of this room then. It's all done in memory, but it's so seamless like a movie, it just keeps reappearing. But if you can get in there, into the gaps, you can actually watch the appearance. 
I'm going to tell you. You go look for it. I'm going to save you years. Should I try to save you years? Yes. Slow down way, way, way down where you actually watch your body form. It only takes about 150, 200, 250 milliseconds until your body... Watch, watch your, your hand actually appear before your eyes. Or a person. Or watch them vanish. Gone. You can do that. You can practice to do this. You just have to know you can do it. So you're, you're bright people. All you have to know is that you can do it. And then be patient. And practice insight. And slow your cognition down. And slow your breath down. And so on. And there'll come a time where you go, Whoa. I just saw the wall appear. The wall has to appear over there. It doesn't, it doesn't actually exist in my experience. Does it exist? Yes. But nothing like I know it exists. But every time I move my vision, it has to reappear again. It has to be refreshed. Isn't that amazing processing power? Way more than your laptops. How many synaptic interconnections of just nerve cells? Because I don't want to talk about glial cells. Okay? Because we're neuro, we're neurology, we're nerve uh, biased because of the nature of how neurological studies have been done. Nerves. How many synaptic connection, connections between nerve cells are there? Been counted, by the way. 10 to the 80. That's more stars than there are in the known universe has been measured. By the size of the known universe, there are more connections in one single brain in this room than all the stars in the known universe. What are they doing? That's why this looks so seamless. It takes extraordinary computing power to make this feel like a seamless movie where you actually feel it's all in real time and all the gaps are filled in and it feels completely real as if you're there. But you're not. You're actually not there. And it's filled in. It's cool. Let's go find out. So I'll read that sentence again now that I've made that those statements. Substance, that means any object of experience except you. Okay? Now we're not talking about you. But we are. We'll get to that. Actually, anything. Okay? Anything. Anything at all. Even a concept. So any kind of experience is a substance. Because we think it's a substance. Should I, should, do you know what I mean by that? Sometimes I, I look at you and then I go, maybe you don't know what I mean. Watch. I'll give a demo. Give me a demo. This, I hope this really saves you years. What's being experienced? What's being experienced? What's the only thing that's being experienced? Only points of sensation. All the rest is an interpretation called a concrete pillar. Break down your conceptualization and the concrete pillar is an unknown entity with extraordinary capacity and possibilities, but it's no longer a concrete pillar. 
That's called a substance. There's no substance that we know here. We only conceptualize it. That's how thick, that's how thick the habitual pattern is. We put our hand on it and we go, pillar. Nothing of the sort. Just sensation. All the rest is made up. It's all. Everything. Everything. Not substantial whatsoever. Master that and master the elemental composition in prana and you put your hand right through the pillar. Back out again. That's how much it's a figment. Even if I could do it, I'm not allowed to, okay? There you go. It's against the rules. So how do you... That's how firm it is as a habit pattern. It's so firm that it's solidly real. But we're not really concerned here with solid or not solid or psychic powers. Because for freedom, we don't really need to do that. What we simply need to know is that every time we have substantial experience, it's a conceptualized reality, not the object in itself. This is a huge pattern to break, but it can be done simply by looking very closely until realization develops, experience develops, and then realization. You need something so deep that the cognition shifts and you'll never forget it again. Is everybody getting a feeling for it? It happens so fast that you just go, no way, no way. That person's out there. No, that person's not out there. The experience interprets what's out there and it happens in the mind. We know this from neurophysiology. This is not just Buddhist philosophy and Buddhist yogis talking. They were good phenomenologists. They experience so well and practice so deeply that neurophysiology and cognitive science has caught up. And they're using the same models from the Abhidhamma today to explore. Let me carry on. I think I've made that statement a few times. The different elements that make up a person, a body, beliefs, thoughts, desires, and so forth, for example are seen as single, permanent, independent self due to the superimposition of substance on such a basis. What do we mean? Mm -hmm. The body feels real even though all that's being experienced is a mental mapping, a superimposition in the mind, like the Lamborghini. Do you see? So the Lamborghini experience for Jamie is no different than when you go like this. Or when you go like this, and you go, my finger. It's projected outward, so you feel there's a finger out there, but that's not what's happening. It's a map just as clear as a Lamborghini. If you interfere with it enough, you're going to start to see... <laughs> Whose finger? That's Cynthia's finger. I'm sure it's Cynthia's finger. So we're going to do some experiments with you, if we can get some body parts. We need to get some body parts. And then you're going to have some aha, 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 right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You had a real good one once. Aha, aha, oh my God. Where you're going to go, 
your whole body's mapped out in the mind and nothing more. And we're going to actually do things so that you become somebody else. That's how fast and easy it is. Let's see if we can do it. We make the do parts of your body. It's a little more difficult to do a whole body, but it's been done. There's some labs now that have done entire body switching where they've fooled the uh, brain so that you become another body. And out-of-body experiences. Ramachandran has figured out in uh, uh, San Diego how to create bo- out-of-body experiences with two or three sets of mirrors. I've seen. I've got the paper on my computer where he published it. You can throw the body right out into space. It's pretty cool. He's very good. He's such a brilliant neuroscientist, a, a neurologist. He figures these things out. So how's the brain? Okay, the brain works this way. We're going to have to fool it this way, trick it into this way, including solving people's uh, you know um, false limbs and things like that. He's very good. He's a very good doctor. Brilliant man. Very compassionate man too. He's like the Sherlock Holmes of neurology. Mm. He is, isn't he? And he acts like that too, you know? He acts like that. He's like the Sherlock Holmes. He just kind of takes one problem on after another and just goes through it. And he, and he likes, you see, his department or his access, he can access multi-million dollar piece of equipment. But you know what he likes to do? Five bucks. He likes to do experiments with like five bucks. A piece of cardboard, a mirror, set it up and solve it. He's just great. He likes that, right? Yeah, I could apply for a couple million dollars because he could easily, right? But, you know, it was really good. We put a piece of cardboard here. We got a little feather over here, a little brush. And we put a mirror over here. And we put a mannequin's finger over here. And lo and behold, that's all. Okay, next problem. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty interesting fellow. Okay. Let me read that again. The different elements that make up a person, a body, Beliefs, thoughts, desires, and so forth, feelings and emotions, for example, are seen as a single, permanent, independent self. Maybe not for all of you, but for most people. They flow on. My emotions, my body is pretty constant. Get up in the morning, same body. Would you say that? Get up in the morning, same body? It's okay. But for what would you say for most people, not you sophisticated Buddhists? Would you say for most people, you get up in the morning, people get up in the morning, and it's they say, that's my body, right? Mm-hmm. And it was the same body as when you went to sleep, and the same mind. And if the feelings are relatively similar to the day before, oh, I'm having my emotions, right? Those are my emotions. And I've had them for years, but they're my emotions. I, I hear people talk like this. Well, that was the emotion I had last week. I'm, I have this emotional thing. I have this emotional thing. I have this personality pattern. I I get irritated by so-and-so, and it's been going on for years. I have been irritated. It's my irritation. It's my fear, my love. Did you follow? Right? Permanent. Or at least semi-permanent phenomena. An independent self due to the superimposition of substance on such a basis. That means... Just like that. Something that actually isn't permanent, is a fleeting experience, becomes superimposed as what? A fixed entity of reality. The same happens when ordinary material things that have parts 
are apprehended as a single, permanent, independent object. We do that all day long, just like this. Including splitting off subject and object. Right? Split. It is because this cognitive default, it is because this cognitive default of the superimposition of substance is seen as the primary cause of suffering that the Buddhist philosophers, Buddhist yogi scholar philosophers, draw a distinction between the understanding of arguments, establishing emptiness, and its realization. Is that clear? It's one thing to understand, it's another thing to realize it. It's a big step to realize it. It's one thing to get a really good intellectual feel, it's another thing to be able to put your hand through the wall, back and forth. That's a very high level of realization, at will. Some places they consider the mundane psychic power, but anyways, people practice that. Okay? But the actual ability to be able to see the experience, the world as it really is, takes uh, not just one or two experiences. It's for some very rare. It does just once. I read once of a very famous um, yogi scholar who passed away not so many years ago. In his memoirs, he said, "Actually, I got it during debating when I was a teenager." But it's a tulku. He's, he's an incarnate lama. Just got it. Just doing some debating, and there was done. Done for the rest of his life. These are rare beings. For us, right, 99.9% of us, we need to work at it. Mind you, the brilliant thing about that being is he then worked on it for the rest of his life and perfected it. So he became a great teacher for beings. Why? Because he actually took that experience, that realization, and then worked it, worked it, worked it, worked it, worked it until it was manifesting so totally. So even if you have realization, if it's not utterly total, which is very rare, that's called a Buddha, then you've got years and years and years of perfecting, 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 which is beautiful, isn't it? What else is there to do? That's called life. In my book, that life. Being convinced by some Buddhist argument, I'm not keen on the language sometimes, being convinced by some Buddhist argument that substances do not exist does not usually entail that the things will not still appear to us as being substances or at least as being based on substances, right? Just because we're convinced of the argument or we, or we go along with it, it doesn't change how we really see the world, does it? Does it? Has it done it for you? Just like that? You can get it intellectually, but you're going, just a minute. Uh, that's a cup, right? And I can taste the liquid. Mm. And it is water, for sure. Nope. But the elimination of this appearance is only achieved by realization of emptiness, or what I would call definitive enough experiences that they're stable and they really actually land. Whereas there can be many experiences. Many people have many experiences of emptiness, 
but they don't land anywhere. They don't really, how do I say it? They're not stable. The ultimate aim of the Buddhist project, the ultimate aim of Dharma, of life, of awakening life, is therefore not just the establishment of a particular philosophical theory, but the achievement of a cognitive change, a physiological change. Psychological is not psychological. Psychological is physiological. Minds uh, are not just minds in an ether. They're also physiological. The elimination of a substance as a theoretical posit or idea by means of arguments has to be followed by its elimination as an automatic cognitive superimposition, as an automatic response, as just an automatic blind habitual response to what? By means of spiritual practices. You practice, practice, practice until it becomes seamlessly integrated into experience. And once you have that confidence, then you keep growing it, you keep developing it, you keep exploring it deeper and deeper and deeper. Okay? That's the Buddhist project. <laughs> sometimes sometimes a little bit uh, awkward reading somebody else's text because I respect what he's done very much. I like what he's done. But sometimes I go, this is not on the tape, you see. <laughs> it's a view. But when I'm teaching, the beings I'm teaching, I like to be, I'm very precise with the language that I use. It's very important that you're not sloppy. Like, for instance, here's a good one. Uh, the Buddha's begging bowl, a monk's begging bowl. People use it all the time. Translated that way, you see it in texts, you see it in sadhanas, practice texts, begging bowl, begging, there's no begging bowl. Uh, monks and, and nuns don't, don't beg. They never beg. Never have begged. Beggars beg. Members of the order don't beg. They're given, they're given gifts. And if they don't give a gift, they walk on. And the society is, is enculturated or, or developed to support the order by giving food as a generous donation, not because the person's begging. This is completely wrong. But that's what I mean. I'm precise about language. Why? Because it taints the view deeply. It taints the view. It's a it's it's Michididi, wrong view. Okay, almost almost through this section. So he talks about two principles which he extracts from uh, Buddhist meditation tradition. He calls them the principle of permanence and the principle of eternia of eternality. That is that things have a permanent feel and that they are eternally lasting. It's like a teenager, right? A teenager or a 20-year-old feeling that somehow they're going to be lived till forever. Even though they know they're going to die, they feel they have an infinite number of years ahead of them. Right? Or the planet's going to go on forever. Or the, the way we know things just chunters on. It turns out from psychological experiments, I, there's a long paragraph about this. It turns out that the, when, they, when there's psychological experiments to see if this is in fact true, 
with human beings. The, the need for permanency, the need to create a story that has a linked um, story where none exists, turns out to be uh, possibly, I'll say possibly, hardwired into the nervous system. I'm not keen on hardwired. I'd say is a habit pattern of the nervous system which is deeply entrenched but obviously not hardwired because it'd be very hard to get out of it. Okay? Now here's one that's interesting. I'm going to show you. I don't know if you can see this diagram. Yeah. You see that diagram? The first, the first image there is a set of bars, hollow bars, with a dot up on the left, and then bar, empty bar, empty bar, empty bar, empty bar, and a dot on the right, correct? Mm -hmm. Now what you do is you flash that slide in one second intervals, and what happens? The brain makes a continuous line. It makes a story about it. It doesn't exist, it just does that. This has been done with one experiment after another experiment of different kinds of experiments to find out what? That the brain wants to create patterns where there is none. The brain fills in details and makes stories where there isn't any. It wants permanency. It wants consistency. It wants safety. Let me give you an example. I know of a case, cases with, with uh, some stroke patients where I can't, I think it's either this side, of the, it's near the temporal lobe or the parietal lobe, I forget, this side or this side. And there's an area that if it gets damaged, very small, if it gets damaged, you don't care if everything's stolen you know, so, out of your house. So for instance, for most people, if they go into their house and everything's been taken out of it, it's a very weird feeling, isn't it? Ever had something stolen? And you're looking around, looking around, looking around, and all of a sudden it's like, it's not there. And you keep looking around, you keep looking around, like a stolen bicycle. And you know you left it there, and you keep looking. Like, is it going to reappear? It's a very odd experience, yes? Or the stereo that's missing. I'm sure the stereo has been there for like months. But there's a hole there now. So you keep looking, like if it's going to reappear. If there's a certain very small spot in the brain, if it gets damaged... There's no feeling of uncomfortability in having any loss at all of your personal space, your personal belongings, nothing. Someone could take away your house, and you go, oh, that's fine. That's a map. But there's a whole bunch of maps that keep us steady. You know, like homebodies? Like, we want a home. Some of us. Some of us don't. These are all maps. But this idea of filling in uh, dis disparate things. For instance, I I'm just going to make a joke about this, but you know, I used grapeseed extract, <coughs> and I drank the water, you know, whatever it is, and I was fine the entire time, right? Therefore, it works. There's a perfect example of I need a definitive story to feel safe. Therefore, and but if it doesn't work, then I make a story about how it doesn't work. Do you see? Happens all the time. Like little doggy Frankie, right? Who we put on such and such medication, and they get better, right, in a day? And you go, wow, let's use it for everybody. But we don't go, chance, 
circumstances, other factors, because we don't want to. Why? This is something you need to face up to. Human beings like a single cause. Once they have a single cause, they shut up. It's great. It's just wonderful. <laughs> How about this one? The earthquake that happened, the tsunami in Japan from an earthquake, was caused by um, bad mental thoughts by the Japanese. It's great. It's finished. It's over with. You don't even have to have another story. By the way, people do that, right? That's a, that's a story. I've heard that. I've heard that by so-called intelligent spiritual beings who blame earthquakes on bad people's mental, mental um, properties. These are Buddhists. You know why? Because they heard it. They saw it on the internet. Or some famous person said, Lama or somebody said, by the way, the, the earthquake in Sumatra is caused by bad mental karma. Okay? End of story. No more investigation. Finished. How many times a day do we do that? The weather's caused by. The strawberries didn't ripen this year by. It was a poor coffee season because of. The nematode worms got at the coffee roots. We solved it by using I went into town and got because of. How many times a day? Single cause for an apparent effect where there may be absolutely no relationship whatsoever and the consciousness then goes done, finished, sealed, locked in, got my model, can go home now. See how many times that happens. It's worth doing and seeing how models get built based on flimsy evidence, zero evidence, and yet we want it so badly. I do it all the time to people. Oh, you know that happened? Oh, it's, it's caused, it's, it's, how'd that happen? Uh, caused by that. And I just watched them. Oh, thanks. Okay, great. End of story. Done, sewn up, wrapped up. Great. Like a, like a nice Christmas package. All finished. Nothing in the universe is caused by a sole cause. Nothing. We're not created by a sole cause takes many conditions and supporting conditions to create a human being, not just a sperm and egg to come together. It's quite complex. But we make stories. So this has been well-researched over and over and over again, how the human being can see something. It's got the story, done. Walks around like with that for the rest of their life, going, I understand. Or I don't even understand, but I have a belief system. Especially at a certain age when you're very idealistic. Mm -hmm. It's amazing how many belief systems get built up when you're idealistic about the economy, politics, worldview, people, places, things that you live with the rest of your life. All chemicals are bad. But grapeseed extract isn't. What is grapeseed extract? Mm -hmm. Chemicals. Some of those chemicals that are extracted from plants are more toxic than some of the man-made chemicals. By the way, I'm not in any way supporting the 80, 75 to 80,000 man-made chemicals 
that nobody knows what they do to organisms on the planet, and a lot of them are highly toxic. Okay, so I, I'm, correct, I'm making a counter-corrective to that statement. There's something the order has been measured of 50,000 to, I think, 90,000 man-made synthetic chemicals that have been released on the planet in the last 100 years. And most of them, we don't know what they do to organisms that have never encountered these chemicals ever before. Some of them are fine. The organisms break them down, they can handle them. But many have never been studied, simply don't know. Amazing, eh? Rather than interpreting this particular stimulus, this is this example of the, of the dots, rather than interpreting this particular stimulus as one object appearing at one spot and immediately disappearing followed by another, that is, dot, and then a dot appearing, that means there's intervals. Instead of intervals, we want con continuity. Are, are you getting a feeling for what I mean? So instead of seeing discrete entities of having a different relationship with each other, we want to make a concrete, permanent, continuous experience when there's nothing there at all. This is a human habit pattern. We all have it. That is, the spot appears, then disappears. Appears and disappears. We don't like that. The dog moved there, then the dog moved there, and we fill in the blanks with our consciousness, and we have one continuous story with the dog. But that may not, in fact, be how the dog traveled. The dog may have been up there, came around, and it may be two dogs, similar, but we'll fill it in and see the same dog. The principle of permanence causes us to see the two dots as a single object changing its position in space. When offered the choice of either regarding some sequence of stimuli as corresponding to a series of momentary arising and ceasing objects, or as an enduring object changing its attributes, our brains seem to opt automatically for what? Permanence, eternality, and continuity, even when it doesn't exist. Is that cool? Is that neat? It's survival, right? Survival. Yeah. Usually there's an evolutionary reason for it, but it causes suffering. Why? It might be useful for one thing, especially in the woods or the forest, but in the urban environment or when, you, when it comes to conceptualization and understanding, it actually causes tremendous suffering. Because now we believe in all of our continuous stories. Dreaming, even though there'll be a whole section on dreaming. Have you experienced dreams? What happens in a dream? Most of the time, most of, even when you're having lucid dreams, what happens in a dream? What do the objects feel like? Real. Isn't that cool? And they're imaginary. And how about you? Real. Very often real. And what is it? Do you, can you remember from a dream? There's nothing there, is there? Isn't that something? This is how deep it goes. This is why we practice dream yoga. So we can, more, we can uh, frequently, more and more and more, experience the illusory nature of the dream 
where the objects don't appear to exist and the self doesn't appear to exist. We need to do the same yoga that we do during the day uh, while we're dreaming. We need to, we need to do we need to apply what we do during the day what we're doing in the day to dreams, or we apply what we do in dreams, which is to see that the objects and the being in the dream is a mental projection, is a dream in this world. But we're gonna we'll get to that. Okay. So that continuity of eternal. Have you ever been in a dream? You think you go, it feels like it's gonna go on forever. But it seems to be easier to take that there's a mental projection in a dream than it is now. Like that's it right. It seems like there's a source. Yeah. Like there's the body that's the person that's sleeping. Yeah. Yeah. There's more of a sensory. Think of it this way. The Lamborghini. Let's let's do an experiment with Jamie. The Lamborghini. Can you visualize? Can you see the Lamborghini? Okay. Or the Ferrari with the Ferrari logo? Okay. Yeah, that's easier. Okay, easier. Ferrari logo? That's because the monks. Though. Yeah, the monks, yeah. Because okay, they're dressed up in Ferrari suits. Okay, you have that? Is there any difference between that and a dream? No. No. Now, let's add another sensory component because you're using your mind door. Are you? Does it feel different when you hear the dog? No. Yeah, exactly. Now I want you to put your hand against the gray pillow. <laughs> Is there any difference at all? I suppose not. It's not. Yeah, you see. So when sensory, if, when when the sensor, when the senses get involved, and it's not just a mind or operation, it feels more real. But Jamie just said it's the same with the dog barking, as in a dream. The, but because you believe the sensation to be more real than a mental phenomena, even though the sensation is happening in your brain. It's the same as a Lamborghini, but it's so habitually strong that when you touch something, it's real, but the mental image isn't. Isn't that cool? But sound is, I told you, sound is very good for practicing with emptiness, because that feels like a dream. You can actually make, that's just like a dream. That's just like a dream. So now what you need to do is practice in dreams touching things. Say, tonight I'm going to actually remember dreaming, touching things. I'm going to touch fabric in a dream. I'm going to smell something in a dream. I'm going to do coffee tasting. I have a coffee tasting in a dream and see if that's any different than coffee tasting uh, at uh, Mirador uh, Villa. That's, that's how you do it. And you do it so much that eventually this experience right now has no difference in experience as a dream. At all. Zero. Zip. None. But it's thick, isn't it? It's very thick. It's very, 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 very thick. Can you do it again? Try it. I'm, 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 I'm visualizing this. That's because you're actually visualizing it. You don't experience touch. You vis most people touch, visualize touch. They don't. Rare, they rarely actually touch. They visualize, and even when they touch, they're still having a mental impression, not out there, 
in the nervous system. Where does it occur? In the nervous system. But outwardly projected, transposed out there, so it feels out there. Why? Because as organisms, we needed to do that for evolutionary purposes. But it's a false experience. That's all. It's not wrong. It's just false. So if you don't, if you're not able to do that, Jamie, or any of you, touch something and go, that's cold and that's a metal bar, you're going to be in serious difficulty for survival purposes. But it doesn't mean that that is actually what you're experiencing. That's where the dividing line is. Now, then you get people where they say a Buddha, enlightened being, doesn't, doesn't have any relative view. That's not true. They couldn't function. They'd walk into trees because the trees are transparent. They would, you know, do you see what I'm saying? It's just a cognitive illusion, so they wouldn't see it walk into it. That's not true. It's, simul it's called two-in-one. It's the two-in-one. As there is relative, there is also absolute simultaneously. And that's very hard for a nervous system to handle because it wants one or the other. This is a test of realization, or of some realization. All I need to do is just ask someone a few questions, a little bit. And they, if they don't have any ex really deep experience, they go relative or they go absolute. But when there's actual genuine experience and stability, it's seamless like this, actually pretty high. Okay, some realization. That means they're able to dwell in the absolute and, re and the uh, relative seamlessly at once and giggle. It's not easy to do because the nervous system wants one or the other. In a sense, but not true. In a sense, but just take it with a grain of salt. One hemisphere of the brain or the other hemisphere of the brain, but not both integrated. We, we operate like this, by the way. But we sometimes, over here or over here, when it comes to modeling, we side with one point of view or another. But not like, well, let's entertain 100 different causes. You know, imagine talking to someone. They say, oh, the weather, the weather turned cloudy. And they say, well, it turned cloudy because I heard there's a, um, um, a storm off of uh, uh, the Pacific. You say, well, yes, there's a storm off the Pacific, but there's actually a ground movement coming in this way. There's cooling over here, and you go on as a weather, you know, as a weather expert with 40 different effects for one hour, saying, well, yeah, this happened, and actually last year this precipitation, and actually the groundwater, and the person's going, what? And you're just holding all these various factors in mind. We rarely do that, right? Why is, why is Freda licking you? Should we give her an answer? Let's give an answer. Freda likes you. Good. Done. No, she's hungry. No, done. She's hungry. <laughs> okay. Get the idea? So it seems that our view of sensory information both in the waking state and in the dream state is generally determined by the principle of externality. Things external to the mind. Isn't that something? Out there. A world out there. Causes out there. Controlled by out there. Nothing like that. 
Where does all this happen for you right now? Mind. But is that how it is experienced by most people? No. Out there. How about your rumbling tum- tummy? Or your, your, your arm that feels kind of sore, if it does. Or your knees. Where is it? Out there. My body. Where is it happening? In the mind. In the experience. It's not external at all. It's not separate one bit from the mind. And yet it's projected out. Isn't that cool? I find this cool, by the way. And not just cool, not even fascinating. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. In both cases, we regard the source of the information to be something that is both external to us and existing independently. Right? Out there. Cool, isn't it? Out there. Right? The foot exists out there. Is this correct? But that's not true, is it? The foot is is interdependently arising due to circumstances of mind and phenomena. Doesn't exist externally at all. Is there something out there? Yep. You go find out what it is, and after a whole lifetime of study, you tell me what a foot is. How are you going to describe a foot? Cynthia? Vascular system? Immune system? Which one are you going to study for the rest of your life? Atoms? Molecules? Quantum effects? Reflection of light? Which which one would you like to take on for the rest of your days for five or six lifetimes to try to pin it down? as an external phenomenon. Right? When, in fact, what's happening? The external phenomena <coughs> is so complex and so beyond measure that it must be made up in the mind continuously and modeled in the mind to have any satisfaction. But where does it happen? In the mind. We know this from neurophysiology as well. If you talk to a neurophysiologist, they would tell you today in modern parlance, especially ones in the last 20 years, it's in your brain. Get it? It's happening in your brain. It's not out there. It's in your brain. All experiences where? For a neurophysiologist, they won't say mine. Most will not say mine. Some now do. They don't like brain. Some neurophysiologists aren't so happy with brain. It doesn't sit well because the evidence isn't quite in. They go, brain, but... We'd like to use mind. Most most neurophysiologists and cognitive psychologists will say what? Your brain. Your brain. That's the current object of interest at the moment. You got a brain. It all happens there. That's where it is. It turns out to be flimsy. And there's some very famous scientists at the moment going, you know, it's flimsy. But that's another argument for another day. They wouldn't deny that the brain's really important. But they wouldn't they would not say, some of them will not say, as I won't say, that the brain is the mind. Because the brain is cells. And the mind has properties that are what's there's a beautiful scientific word for this. It's an emergent property of cells. To say that the bra- that the mind is the brain may not be correct at all. But to say that the brain, that the mind, is an emergent 
property, an emergent manifestation of brain and body, that's a different thing altogether. That it comes out of that. That it emerges from that. A good Buddhist would say, "Uh uh-uh. The mind arises through, mind as experience, not mind as ultimate mind, but mind as experience, arises through many, many, many countless interdependent cause and effects, not just your body. Okay, let's let's uh, come to near the end of this. It re- yes. You are mentioning the operating map. Yes. And you are me- measuring the the neuron. Yes. Like the operating map, each one has like a like a modus operandi, and in that there are a lot of neural maps. That's right. And some maybe pop out more readily than others. Yeah. Depending yeah. on the circumstance. But it's, 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 that's also a construct because we cannot count the neural maps we have, or, or we cannot say it's ordered in this way or another. The old, the old idea, well, the old idea was that a neuro, that a map was actually located somewhere in the brain, and there's been a lot of hunts for where the maps are located. So, for instance, you would say, well, the map for face recognition, and they actually know exactly where it is. Those maps for face recognition can be hit with a pinprick and knocked out. But they're not isolated. They're connected to all kinds of other maps to operate. So even though you can knock it out with a pinprick, that's all it takes, you can re-get it because some of that information is stored in other places. So maps are now well known to be highly distributed across large areas of the brain and pulled together with many different kinds of maps. So we think of maps not anymore as a module that you can actually extract out of the brain as a piece of tissue, but as a expanded network of associated maps that are highly plastic depending on the situation. And that's why, for instance, we can have an area of the brain damaged with a hemorrhage called a stroke and find out that some other area can take that over because it's got parts of it and over a period of of weeks to months. Let me give you an example. The speech center. It's not uncommon, is that right? Not uncommon with a stroke to have the speech center knocked out, right? So you, you can't speak. So someone got into their idea, well, you know what, let's use something that's pretty close pretty closely associated with the speech center. And what would that be? Well, we think that singing is the same as speech. It turns out that singing is not located in the same spot. It's over here. Is that right? Yeah, it's right. I think it's over here. And people that sing have a highly developed speech center. So someone got in their, eye, their, in their head, if we get people to sing then they can regain their voice. In fact, that's being used a lot now. People can regain their voice, who've lost their voice, by going to the other side of the brain and using this, using the singing center. If it's well-developed, good. If it isn't, it's going to take more work. Isn't that cool? So it's not like a module. It's modules, but associated areas that are very, very plastic. What about a group of people? <clears throat> 
do the neural maps, resonate others neural maps, so we could talk about uh, kind of group kind of. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's maps. right. That's right. Because maps are similar, so we read each other's maps very carefully. Let's not let's not for the moment get mystical. I don't mind, but let's not at the moment say interpenetrative mind. But even on a normal biological level of interpersonal discourse, the amount of information that crosses between people is so much information that one doesn't even experience. This is all being done today in labs. It's beautiful. Twitches in the muscles, the way the eyes work, the body posture, the smell, all kinds of things. There's, there's hundreds of messages being given off that are being mirrored and mapped with, as a normal human being, not talking about severely neurotic or psychotic, that can actually read all those nuances. Some people can't, by the way. They have difficulties in those maps due to childhood circumstance or genetics that they can't read other beings, right? Either autistic or some sort of social difficulty. And I've met some uh, that have a difficulty in that they simply can't read what another person is thinking or doing. It's... You know, the buzzword today is mirror neurons, but that's a nice buzzword. That's like right hemisphere and left hemisphere, but it's, it's not bad. But they just can't pick up those maps. So it's going, but I thought you meant, or did you really mean that? Or how come you're, you're upset? Yeah, I'm bloody upset. <coughs> well, you didn't look it, but it's because you couldn't read it. You see? Hundreds and hundreds of messages. And this is lots of research right now, and there's lots of research group just teasing out those messages. And there literally are hundreds of messages being transferred back and forth in every social discourse. And if you're a reasonably normal human being, you you read them fairly well, although we make mistakes. Males make a lot of mistakes. Females make a lot of mistakes about males. Can you give me an example about a common one that males make about females? No, what's a common one? We're understanding each yeah. other. Yeah, or with a, sometimes, sometimes it's a standard. And I'm, I'm painting with a large brush, please. How are you doing? I'm fine. Oh, good. Okay, thanks. But I'm not fine. But won't say it. Only later. But that's that's fairly standard. That's my experience, right? And that's fairly well documented. Is how are you doing? I'm fine. I'm crying, but I'm fine. I'm upset, but I'm fine. I'm actually really bloody mad at you, but I'm fine. Oh, so the male goes, okay, great. That's good. I'm glad you're fine. I'm, I'm, I'm going out to the garage, and I'm working. I'm going to work on my Ferrari. And the female's going, you didn't get it all, did you? Is that, is that relatively? I've heard of that. You've heard of that. <laughs> You've heard of that. Yeah. And how about males? How about males? How about males? What's a common one for females with males where they don't read males? Can you think of any? Oh, you're so good at reading males. Talking during the football game. Yeah, talking during the football game. Or, or how about this? Um, males' interest in the details of a football game. Actually wanting to discuss for hours, I, I, I don't have that gene or that thing in me at all, but I'm just what I've seen, right? Hours about the soccer score and who did this and who did that and the... Who's going? 
Or, or see, now it's female strategies to get involved a little bit, show interest <laughs> to their to their own regret, because the, because then the male goes goes, isn't that great? They love football. They love they so much love football. What they're saying is, I'm trying to bond with you. Would you spend some time with me? Maybe later or something like that. Uh, let's go out for a beer and okay, I'll come out with a beer, but they don't want to. I'm just I'm just painting a very please. Very broad brushstroke. Yes. Does the mind have maps? No. Not the brain. It depends what you mean by mind. Mind maps. If so we're if we're talking about large M mind. Yes. No. It doesn't need it. If we're talking about small M mind, yes. Large M mind doesn't need it because it's the source of all phenomena. Therefore, it contains all maps, but doesn't actually have any maps, because no maps actually exist. Is it universal consciousness? Then how do how then do people have the experience of of past lives, or or like if you're working in the dumb practice, and then all of a sudden stuff pops out? You just jump to another place. There's many, many levels of explanation. Many, many, many levels of explanation. But for some things, if it's true, uh, and I like to play on this, because sometimes I don't exactly share how I see the universe. But if you take something called past lives as being relatively real, you have to understand in the Vajrayana, past lives aren't real. They're imaginary. But where do they come from? They come from the ground of mind. So in that sense, mind as experienced is not something that's individual. It's something that's actually accessible to minds. So you're, you're the, you don't have a previous lifetime. There are previous lifetimes that have a interdependent connection to others. In the same way that the Buddha could reportedly experience 100,000 of others' previous lifetimes because mind is connected to all phenomena that have gone in the past, is in the present, and in the future. All printed out. Why? Why is that the case? Let me just try to blow your minds. Why is that the easiest thing in the world to understand? Because mind is dimensionless. It's not a thing. If it was a thing, it couldn't happen. But because it actually is the base, the root, and it isn't a thing, it, can ha it has vast properties where all that is possible. So we might use the, the brain map to access that. That's right. That's right. Use the brain map to access um, qualities that are not necessarily of the brain. I'm putting that out as a possibility. Okay, you have to find out for yourself. That's another, that's another level of discourse with you. Okay, that's another level of discourse. It's one I don't want to enter into at the moment. Okay? I'm going to tell you though. I'm hoping that you're going to get the idea here, get the feel, that when it comes to previous lifetimes and other kinds of psychic phenomena, be very careful that you don't visualize in that quarter of a second a perfectly formed Lamborghini. It is possible to experience an entire lifetime 
in a fraction of a second perfectly that never, ever happened. In the same way that you can experience a false memory from childhood and know perfectly well that you were beaten up or abused and it never, ever, ever happened. Or it did. That can just be done like that. That's how fast and vast the mind is. Eight, 10 to the 80 neural synapses means that you can actually produce, if you wish, uh, I was, by the way, I had a recollection um, of a previous past life. It was the flea on Cleopatra's shoulder. Well, because I met at one time the rebirth of Cleopatra. <laughs> so she said, well, who are you? Because obviously we're connected. You must have been somebody very important in ancient Egypt. And I said, yes, I, I was very important. She said, who, who, who? I said, I was the flea on your shoulder. And you went like that. <laughs> Did she get mad? She didn't talk to me for a year. She was so mad. So I went, I mean, I was very, I was very clear. I said, yeah, I was the flea on your, on Cleopatra's shoulder. And you went like that. That may be truer than fiction. Why are all, most all the previous lifetimes mysteriously being human in human form? And not worms and dogs and other kinds of creatures, even celestial, other kinds of things. It's all, and interesting that they're often famous people. <laughs> yeah, like Napoleon, you know. <laughs> Napoleon and, you know, Einstein, and, you know, this and that, right? It's how mysterious that famous Tolku or, you know, five or six people or ten people are all the same rebirths of a, of a llama, right? Very interesting. How is that? Well, that's another, that's another <laughs> discourse. So be very. What I'm saying is, be very careful. It's much better for a while to practice insight and gain very, very good insight and experience that all that mind can produce anything at all, anything, anything. Then, when you get really pure and really clear. Purified, we may be able to talk about previous formations if there's good experience of anatta, non-self. Because then it's not an ego trip. And then it's accessing information for compassionate reasons, not because you need to have other selves. This is, that's why it's taught in Dharma. So if you look at the Vimuti Mag and the Vasudhi Mag, the two oldest meditation texts, they actually have in there the practice of recollection of previous lives, exactly how it's done. And also in Sri Lanka, uh, it was taught to Namj- one of Namjur Rinpoche's teachers and Nanda Bodhi's teachers, the method of the rings of light, how to recolle- recollect all previous lifetimes. Okay, It's different than in the Vimuti Maga or the Sudhi Maga. But it's taught to beings who are doing it who have passed through the portal of believing they actually have a real permanent self that needs to be protected and, um, uh, what's the word? Magnificized. I just created a new word. Um, Emblazoned, emboldened, embellished. Why? Because they feel lowly. They feel that they're not good enough. They need an embellished lifetime now. So they look for past lifetimes. The healthy ego doesn't need a past a past lifetime. None at all. 
You don't need a future lifetime. You don't need a past lifetime. As a matter of fact, a very great saint in Tibet, before he died, who was it? I'll remember it. Told his, his disciples, hey, you know what? Oh, yeah, it's right. It's the, the founder of the Drikung school, Sumgun, right? Or Drikungpa. Great, great enlightened being. He, he gave teachings to his students and said, hey, most of what you do here prints itself out now. It's not going to be in previous lifetimes. Completely contrary to most teachings. It's printing out now. Don't, don't, don't worry about previous lifetimes. That's minor. Now. It prints out in this lifetime. All kinds of stuff like that where you read mainstream stuff then you see these incredibly enlightened yogis who go, like Namja Rinpoche, right? You want to know where what you need to clear in this lifetime? The womb. Very strong on that point. Very original. Very original. Not mainstream at all. Clear the womb and you clear almost everything you need to clear. All the rest of the stuff from previous lifetimes is not so major. If you can clear that. Because then after that it's pretty clear sailing. It's the It's the major physiological alterations that happen in the womb, which is what you mostly carry as chemical washes that you don't know what, where it comes from. You just don't know where it comes from. This is a great mind of insight, a great meditator speaking. Yeah. I, I still don't understand what, what you mean by clearing the womb. Oh, that the... the, uh, the let's, let's use the word. No, maybe not. Let's going to use the word unconscious. Uh, just try to stay away from it. The non-experienced patterns that flood, the word asawan Pali, that flood your being or so far below the radar of your consciousness that they keep hitting you again and again and again. Phobias, um, crying jags, whatever it is, how you react to people, even where you go, are deep chemical washes in your being that are so invisible to most people. Where does most of that get laid down? According to Namjoon Rinpoche, most of it from the womb. Because that's where the physiological tracks are being laid down without thinking content. But later on, it, it, that, that, those physiological shapings interact with environmental circumstances in early childhood, later childhood, teenage years, and create than deeper disturbances or less disturbances that one has to contend with. So the model that it happens in early childhood has been highly suspect for a while. Some does, some doesn't, but not really. Now we have other, other more powerful tools, which is a lot of it's epigenetic. That means it's passed on, some of the stuff is passed on uh, for one or two generations. Not Lamarckian. It's actually laid down over the genes as chemical traces. At least two generations. Depression, anxiety, these things, you know. And people go, that's my anxiety. Where did I get it? <laughs> Don't forget it. Two generations ago, laid down by your mother, your father, usually from the father, laid down. Stop blaming the mothers all the time. Laying down, laid down, and you're just inheriting it. That's all. But it's your, it's your, it's your uh, responsibility to clear it. It's not genetic. It's it's covering the genetic. It's cover. It's printing. It's helping the genetics print out in a certain way because it's a chemical overlay. Those are called methyl groups. The methyl groups go in and 
Me- methyl group. Methyl group. Like, you know, methyl alcohol? Except, except it doesn't have, it's also one atom short. So those little methyl groups sit on the DNA and control how the DNA gets, print, how the protein gets printed out. And those can be passed down through generations. We know that to be a fact now. That's true. That's called epigenetic. As epi, as opposed to genetic. That means there's an environmental circumstance that prints onto the genes, but is not genetic. And a lot of what we do, we know now, more and more and more, is epigenetic. A lot of psychological material is epigenetic. So don't keep blaming yourself and going, but you have to do something about it. But don't just, or my health, you know, my health is caused because I had some bad states when I was a child, or I did something terrible. No, likely epigenetic. It is a mix of genetics, a mix of epigenetics, a mix of of this lifetime's um, circumstances, sometimes in the wrong place at the wrong time, all kinds of factors, and even sometimes years of difficult psychological states that alter the chemistry in such a way that one now, uh, it exhibits in the body. But I'll tell you where the proof is that it doesn't always. My grandmother. See, I use one example as a complete scientific... Paintbrush. <laughs> it needs to be published. <laughs> but I think you'll know of examples of this. So I'm postulating this as a model, not as a theory, because I don't have enough evidence. Do you know people who are not saints, not saints, who are confused from time to time, mean, nasty, little ogres from time to time, even tortured a little bit, who live to the ripe old age of 99 or 100, 105 or 91, 92, and never get sick. Hardly ever. They catch a cold. So where did all those psychological states go? How come they didn't get sick? But oh, the person who's 25 who who comes down with leukemia, right? They were angry. Tell me some more nonsense. Isn't that a great story? Oh yeah, that person's got liver cancer. Well, isn't doesn't the liver control? Isn't that all liver all about? I get, I get to hear this stuff, right? Isn't it all about anger? Angry, you know, liver controls your anger. All this. Oh, therefore, they get they got cancer. That's where it came from because they were angry, obviously. Have you heard such bilge? Mm-hmm. So you're saying karma has nothing. To do? Nope, karma has everything to do with it. But you, but people see karma as as solely as mental phenomena coming out of the mysterious ether. Karma is a combination of epigenetic, genetic, psychological states. It's vast. But what we like to do is make a simple story about karma. Is I had some bad psychological states when I was a child, therefore I now have this disease. I had some bad psychological states when I was a child. Now I got Ebola. And I'm dying. (laughs) I hope that's not Ebola. Because you've only got a few more minutes to live. Do you see the preposterousness of some of the modern, current psychological views? Just think about it for a few minutes. You're going to go, that's nuts. Because all you need to do is have some examples where it doesn't compute at all. 
Do you see how weird the human consciousness is? It wants these stories. And it tells each other stories. Can psychology drive the organism? Absolutely. But why do some people, this is karma, why do some people not get sick? Because their genetics is strong enough to withstand any psychological state. Why do some people go through a war? My, my first doctor, who's now retired, is a survivor of Auschwitz. Still alive. Right? Tattoo on his arm. Child. Lived, I think, for... Well, his, year, his early years, were li he lived in Auschwitz. Concentration camp. Beautiful, lovely, clear, compassionate um, human being. Well-balanced. I've met people who lived through Auschwitz. Neurotic. Can't function. Do you, do you follow? Why? Why? Explain that. Because of karma. What is meant by karma? All the factors that go together to bring an entity together, not just previous lifetimes. Do you see? It's vast. It's vast. It's vast. And I'm, by the way, I'm using this exactly as Namjur Rinpoche did too. And as may, many mainstream Buddhists do today, scholars and, and yogis, genetics, genetics, genetics. It's imprinted in the genetics. But now we know it's not just imprinted in genetics, it's imprinted on the genetics as markers that can be shifted, as chemical markers. You can unshift them. Sometimes it takes a lot of work. So, it takes a lot of work. Is it worth it? It's worth it. Okay, let me see finish up this chapter, then I go... I am done. <laughs> I'm going to read this to you, but be careful of what you hear. Don't do this at home. Maybe it's getting a bit late for you to hear this, but... But if there is no appearance of either things or persons existing, as the Tibetan authors often put it, from their own side, quote, from their own side, there can be no more grasping at these things because both the grasper and the grasped have disappeared. Since this grasping is what the Buddha regarded as the principal cause of suffering, once grasping has disappeared, the cessation of suffering is obtained. This view that he's proposing is not what is considered in Vajrayana to be full view. Because what he's po positing is things don't exist. It's not true. Things don't apparently exist. But as Longchenpa, great Buddha great attained being, great scholar, great, great yogi said, those who believe the mountain doesn't exist are stupid. But to say the mountain exists, something like this, I'm trying to quote almost exactly, but to say the mountain exists is also stupid. It's simply beyond comprehension. Do you see? So when we say the concrete pillar doesn't exist. 
That is an extreme position of a concept. The concrete pillar doesn't really exist, but something does. Do you follow? Maybe not ultimately, ultimately. This is a debatable point. Still debated. But the concrete pillar appears to consciousness, but it has no separate nature of its own. That means that, that to say it doesn't exist is an extreme point of view. This is, this is much higher teaching. Okay. You want to hear something even higher? By great mountain yogis? The only things that really exist in the universe are the Buddha qualities. All the rest is a figment of mind. There's beings that have discovered that and, and write about it and say, that's absolutely how it is. The only true existing things in the universe that absolutely exist are Buddha qualities. All the rest of it is actually the dreaming mind. And that's how firm things become, including concrete pillars. So existence is independence, constants? When we say the word existence, we mean a a existing substance that has a reality independent. Nothing does. Nothing does. The concrete pillar doesn't. What's holding up the concrete pillar? How, why is that concrete pillar actually remain where it is? It's due to pre-existing conditions. Otherwise, when you take the pre-existing conditions away, the pillar is gone. It vanishes. It can vanish into dust. It can vanish into particles. It will vanish. Just take away those conditions. Boom. Give an example. Lasers. We like lasers. Shine a laser on the concrete, and it can it will vaporize so quickly. Nothing left. Just just uh, just gas. Change of state. So only certain things are keeping that concrete pillar uh, apparently stable and solid. Only apparently, but there's there's hundreds of conditions that keep it apparently like it is right now, but it actually only takes a couple other conditions to change the apparent nature of it. It has no substantive real nature by itself. Has that twisted and turned your brain cells enough? Washed it for a day or two? Just. I'll see you back here. Uh, are we meeting back here, Laurel, or, 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 or at the other house? Be moving. Okay, tomorrow. So no more classes here. They'll be down at um, what to uh, to Haiku. Okay, we're going to go to Haiku, and that will be not tomorrow morning or tomorrow evening, but that will be the. I have to say this three times when people retreat, because about thirty or forty percent aren't hearing or listening, or even registering anything. <laughs> so, I know I found this by experience. Not to put you down, just it's fact. All, today is Sunday. On Tuesday morning, we'll get together again at quarter to nine at Haiku. I don't know, but we're not, you'll figure it out. You've got maps in your, in your rooms. Guess what? On Tuesday morning, <laughs> at quarter to nine, we will get together again Okay, at Haiku. One more time. 
<laughs> trying to make eye contact. <laughs> Tuesday morning, which is another day from now, one more day from now, we will get together at a quarter to nine, right, for class at Haiku. Okay? Done. I'm not kidding you, right? Has this happened? So many times in retreat, repeat a number of times, and people go like this. And somewhere around 20% or 30% go, I never knew and I never heard it. And they're right there. So, so. Okay, yes? Oops. Yeah, are they real? No. What did you learn in Abhidhamma anyways, Barry? Well, that's what I remember. That is... And I liked it except for the matter. Form, form. Chittas, Chaitasikas, Rupa, and Nibbana, according to classic Abhidhamma, are paramatas. They are true existing realities. Later on, by other great Buddhas and scholar yogis, they are really good, relatively deep realities, but they're not. Others? <laughs> but you see, I have to teach the Abhidhamma that way. Uh, although I did slip a few times. Did I slip a few times? Yeah, I, did. I did. I slipped off the edge a few times. It was hard not to. But I, 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 I kept my face straight all the way through. It's not that it's wrong, Barry, because it's an amazing manual of insight. It's powerful. It's led many beings to profound, profound realization. But according to the Mahayanas and the Vajrayanas, it's called the first turning the wheel, and it's not a complete, fully complete exposition of, of insight. But it's darn good. As some, as some great yogis have said, who are great, great practitioners, don't put it down. It's amazing. It's high, high, high realization. But it's not a complete, profound view. Uh, it's not as complete a profound view. But it will deliver you a long, long way. Sorry to shatter that, Barry. Good, though. Got to hear it sometime. So he's going, I quit four months in Abhidhamma <laughs> and I did what? See, so the teaching's about what? Non-clean awareness. <laughs> okay. You know, it's like with, with my dear beloved teacher. He'd go on about something one day and I just love when someone would do this and then, and then the next day he'd be going, and then, and then, but sir, you said yesterday. What? Did I? So what? Get out. <laughs> Go roll in the snow. Wake up. Get out of here. What are you clinging for? Get out of here. But you said last week. Yeah, just knock it off. You see, you have to get to the point where uh, the journey is more important. The journey is to bring you to what? Realization. Not holding on to the facts. There's things in here tonight I don't even necessarily agree with, ultimately. But you know what? They'll take you a long way. A long, long way. They're high level. Right? High level. High, high level. But I might change my mind tomorrow. And if you disagree, I go, fine, stop clinging. Don't get so emotionally involved. And Heather, see you after. 
by this powerful activity, (laughs) may it lead to the cessation of the emotional disturbances, the clingings, for all beings. May all beings be healthy and happy, and may all beings be established in the continuity of freedom, the natural state of the mind, the perfect union of compassion and wisdom.